is from Luke 15, verses 11 to 32. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man has two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. And we are celebrating because of his safe return. The older, man, the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. 
we had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. This morning, we're continuing our exploration into life, learning how to live life with God. We've been looking at some unhelpful postures and our relationship with God. Sometimes we live under God with legalism. Sometimes we live over God with postures of we, we reduce the Bible to an instruction manual for life and think we can manipulate God that way. I want to leave you with this quote. We've been looking at it the last few weeks. The most important thing about us is what comes into our minds when we think about God. That determines the quality of our life now, and that determines what happens after our physical bodies wear out, our eternal destiny. This morning, the story that was read to us, I gave a new title. It's called The Tale of Two Jerks. Because both sons in this story acted like jerks, entitled jerks. In this picture by Rembrandt, you see the younger brother kneeling in front of a loving father, and then the older brother scowling at the young man who's returned. But there are two postures toward God, two wrong postures that are exhibited in this story. First of all, life from God. What can I get out of my relationship with God? That was a posture shown by the younger brother. Where my needs and greeds are greater than relationship. And my fear and control, wanting to be my desire to be in control of my life, is greater than having a trusting and loving relationship with Father God. This shows itself in a lot of different ways. And classically, when we tell this story, we call it, it's the story of the prodigal son. We don't have time to go into it this morning, but it's, well, let me explain why it's a wrong title. In your Bible, the words in your Bible are inspired by God. The topic headings were not originally in the manuscript. Some helpful person put them in there. But when there's a topic hiding, topic title over this section called the prodigal son, they get it all wrong. First of all, it's not just about one runaway boy. It's, about two, it's really about two lost sons. Not one, but two. Because the older brother, brother was probably even more lost than the younger brother. Wouldn't you agree? And also the word prodigal, at, at its root means totally generous. And really, that, uh, the story should really be called the prodigal father, the prodigal God, the God who is loving. At any rate, we can talk, we can debate the values of these chapter headings and section headings uh, in, our, in our Bibles. I don't want to um, put any doubt about the veracity and authenticity of the Bible because we got it. We have the original manuscripts. We can test it. It's just sometimes those little headings aren't that helpful. So when we think about these two lost boys and a tale of two jerks, everyone tends to think about the younger brother being the worst offender in this story and how awful it is that he 
he squanders his father's inheritance. And, and really, it, it is shocking. The people who heard this story would be appalled. The main audience in this story were religious leaders that were grumbling and complaining about Jesus, hanging out with, quote, the wrong kind of people. Why do you hang out with sinners and those kind of people, people from the other side of the street where we don't go? And if we have to go there, we always make sure we lock our cars and put a club in the steering wheel. Why do you hang out with those kind of people? So Jesus, to try to get them to reflect, starts telling them stories. He tells them a story about a widow that lost, uh, had ten coins and she lost one. And she, she searched and searched until she found it and celebrated finding the lost coin. She talked about a shepherd who had a hundred sheep, lost one, and went, left the ninety-nine behind, searched until he found the last one. And there was a great celebration. He was trying to get them to think. He was trying to get them to open up their hearts. And then he told the story about this son who had wandered away from home and how they threw this wild, generous, extravagant party to celebrate the fact that this young man had, quote, come to his senses. That's what the story says. This young man had to bottom out. And to a devout Jewish audience... To have a good, a nice young Jewish boy feeding pigs was about as low as you could go. I don't even dare try to come up with a modern Canadian equivalent because it would scandalize most of us here on a Sunday morning. But you could just imagine how low this young man had sunk. And the audience hearing this story would be <gasps> horrified. And then when the young fella comes to his senses and starts rehearsing his speech, I'm going to go home and ask my dad for forgiveness, you could just imagine that these uptight religious leaders were just rubbing their hands saying, oh, I bet he really gets it in the neck when he goes groveling home to Papa. Oh, I can hardly wait. He's going to get what he deserves. And could you imagine their shock when they hear in the story that Papa, who's been watching him come, watching every day for the return of his son, doesn't sit there sternly behind his desk and saying, what are your concerns? I grew up with a dad who was an elementary principal, so I'm familiar with some of these behind-the-desk postures. The Papa in the story gets out of his leather chair, sees his son coming down the road, and what does he do in very, very undignified but extremely loving passion, he runs out and embraces his son. The son is a little bit taken aback and he goes into his rehearsed, you know, apology speech that he's been practicing all the way home and Papa just ignores it. Let's have a party! He gets a new robe, he gets a new ring, which basically means you're back in the family. Full restoration and the party starts. Now this is the middle of the day crazy time to have a party really because older brother's been working out in the fields sweating it out sweating it out and he comes in and wonders what the dickens is going on right naturally wouldn't you you come in after a long day's work and you've spent years and years faithfully working for a heartbroken father seeing the grief and seeing 
the economic hardship that this selfish younger brother has caused the rest of the family, the grief. In a dysfunctional family, there's usually a scapegoat, and the younger brother was a scapegoat. He was the one that caused the rest of the family unit to be in dysfunction. Or at least he was, the, he was the one who was blamed, right? He was a convenient scapegoat. He was the empty chair at all the family gatherings. Oh, if only so-and-so would come home. And the inner resentment and jealousy that was building up in the older brother was really, really ugly. So in this life from God posture that I've been talking about, that the younger brother showed, he only wanted what he could get out of the relationship with the father, right? He wanted to extract what he could. And that's what we see in North American Christianity. It's extremely embarrassing to have two dedicated Christians here from another part of the world. And I have to talk about the weaknesses and failures of North American Christianity. You know how North American Christianity shows up in this story? Life from God. Name it and claim it gospel. Blab it and grab it. Whatever you want to call it. We want stuff from God. This consumerist Christianity that creeps into it. It's one thing to go save money on some gadget by going to a big box store, driving by all the little independent stores and going to the big box store and saving $20 on a gadget. But when we start doing that with churches, we ignore the little neighborhood churches and we go to the big box church and say, hey, I get what I want. Now, I'm not decrying large churches. Large churches grow because God is blessing them. But there's this consumeristic attitude that creeps into our language. When you move to a new community and you look for a place to worship, what do you do? You church shop. I've used that term myself, and it's wrong. It's kind of ugly. Because I go around looking, hey, where can I get the best deal? Where can I get the most bang for my buck? I'm not being fed. That's a classic line when someone leads a church, whether they say anything or not to leadership. I'm not getting fed. What they really mean is, I don't like the music, or I don't like the color of the carpet. I really don't like the pastor, but I didn't want to tell him. So I'm not getting fed. My standard reply is, after about a year or so following Jesus, can't you feed yourself and make a contribution to the local church? I don't mean to sound grumpy here this morning, folks, but this, this posture of life from God, it creeps into all of us. I know because I live there more than I want to admit. It's an ugly posture. It's a selfish posture. It's a posture that says to the Father, I want what I want and I want it now. Life from God where my needs and greeds are greater than my relationship with the Father. Let's look at life for God for a moment. Because on paper, you would think this is very noble, right? We can easily slip into the living for God posture, sacrificing everything and working for Him. But it's a really subtle temptation. It's a really subtle fallacy for us to slip into the work of God 
becomes greater than our relationship with God himself. So we put everything into the Lord's work. And we volunteer, and we give time, and we give money. And that's, that's a good thing. But if we do it for the right thing, for the wrong reasons, it's sin. God wants us to do the right thing for the right reasons. And we always need to be testing our motives. Not to the point of paranoia, where, we're, where we live in uh, paralysis by analysis, but just some self-talk. Why do I want to support camps in Georgia and Armenia and Azerbaijan? Because I want children and families to know Jesus. I don't do it because my neighbors and friends badger me to come to an event and I feel guilty unless I do something. No, I want to invest in God's kingdom. God wants us to do the right things for the right reasons. The thing about life for God that can be so ugly, it can be filled with this kind of resentment. You hear how ugly the older brother is? Did you notice in this story, how many times did the father have to go out to a rebellious son? How many times? Not a trick question. He went out once and then second time. Did you notice? He had to go out twice to go after a rebellious son. He welcomed the first rebel, and that's the one that gets in all the artwork and all the stuff, and, 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 and so it should be. It's a great story, you know. Tie a yellow ribbon around the tree and celebrate the return of the prodigal. That's a good thing. But what's really heartbreaking in this story is that while the party's going on, Papa goes out after another rebellious son who is pouting, out of jealousy and bitterness and a deep, ugly rebellion. There's so much of that garbage going on in the church these days. Because those people, those of us who work hard for God, while our hearts are far away from the Father, we think we're doing good things. And I'm not saying you should resign every position in the church. I'm not. God just wants us to do the right things for the right reasons. Do you hear what I'm saying? It is such a subtle sin. It is so dangerous to our spiritual lives where the Lord's work replaces the, the Lord himself. Do you have a relationship with God? Uh, well, I, I go to church and I put something in the plate and I'm on a couple of committees and I do stuff. I do my part. Do you have a relationship with God? Well... I, I go to church and I... No, no, no. Do you have a relationship with God? Do you understand? Do you understand? Do we understand? It's a heart thing, folks. So much ugliness in the older brother's response. All these years I've been slaving for you. Yeah, right. And you never did this. Whenever anyone uses the words never and always in an argument... Red warning lights should go off because we absolutize everything. Check it, and the next time you're in an argument with a family member or a friend, especially someone you feel really invested in, you never do this or you always do this. That's what happened with the older brother. That's what makes it so ugly because the work 
for God and working for the kingdom replaces our relationship with the Father himself. And in this story, the heartbroken father goes out twice after rebellious sons. And it's so sad. It's so heartbreaking, this story. We don't know how the story ends. We do know that with both lost boys, the father goes out to seek them. He gently, gently rebukes their wrong thinking, and he gently challenges their false assumptions. Then he offers them his grace and his relationship. The first boy, you know, he throws them the ring and the robe and the party. And the second thing, second son, he goes out and said, son, you're always with me. You always have the opportunity to have a relationship with me. So why show up in church out of duty and resenting and judging other people? Why show up here with a lousy attitude and miss out on a relationship with the Father? That's a real tragedy. And I'm not saying that to make us feel guilty. There's no point in us making, making you feel guilty. I, I can feel guilty enough for all of us, but that's not helpful. Conviction's good. Because conviction, prompting from the Holy Spirit, leads us to do something and do some business with God, okay? So God's into conviction, not guilt. Satan is into guilt, and he will accuse you, and after you leave today, he will make you feel like an awful person. Conviction leads us to the cross and says, hey, Jesus, I need to offload some garbage today, and I need to learn how to live with the Father. That's the invitation that God is giving us today. We're going into communion right now, and I'm going to ask the elders and the people who are serving to come and sit down in the first row here, okay? And the worship team, you guys can come up too. But in preparation for communion, we're going to pray a prayer together. That's kind of based on this story of the prodigal son. And remember, this is not just some empty ritual or habit that we go through. Why do we do this? We remember the fact that God, in his gracious love, goes out after rebels. Where they look, whether they act inappropriately, or they look really inappropriate and are dead on the inside, whatever's going on, God goes after rebels. He goes after non-religious rebels, and he goes after religious rebels. That should pretty much include everybody that you know. All right? He goes after all of us. And I'm wondering, where do you place yourself in this story? Who do you want to be like? Who do you relate to? Who do you want to be like? At any given time, I can act like the younger brother and try to get stuff from God. At any given time, I can act like the older brother and get so wrapped up in working for God that I miss my relationship with him. Totally. It's embarrassing to admit that. Too bad you got a human being for a pastor. Better luck next time. But this table is for people who need the Father. That's the invitation today. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer that will help tune our hearts for what's coming next. Okay? Let's pray this together, okay? Holy One, 
The space between us is too great. This agonizing expanse between you and us. The rift we have created by demanding our share. The distance we have put between us as we flee to a far country. The resentment we hold when things don't seem fair. Our refusal to join your gracious party. Forgive each selfish request, each step away. Each bitter thought, each joyless rejection. Forgive us and run toward us with open arms. <laughs>